Well, g'day, uh, brothers and sisters, friends in Christ in Mafra. Um, good to be preaching God's word to you today. I trust you're uh, encouraged in the Lord Jesus and uh, looking to encourage each other uh, during this time of dislocation and lockdown and everything else. But let's uh, pray and then we'll read God's word and then we'll think about it together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for these uh, treasures that you've trusted to us. Uh, we thank you for the book of Acts and the way it describes the progress of the gospel and uh, the fellowship of the earliest people who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And so we ask that you would help us today to learn from their example of, uh, of devotion and trust and, and faith in the Lord Jesus that expressed itself in, in love for one another uh, so that uh, the gospel might grow. So help us to take to heart the lessons that we learned today and put them into practice in our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you remember uh, back in the 1970s, I think it was, uh, if you're old enough, if you're old like me, you might remember that on the TV there were ads for Berger Paints. And uh, John Malin, a fairly famous Australian actor, was the other uh, face of Berger Paints. And the Berger Paints lo uh, catchword was uh, Berger Paints keep on keeping on. They keep on keeping on. In other words, you paint them on and they're going to last. They're going to keep doing the job that you want a good coat of paint to do. Berger paints, keep on keeping on. Well, I want to suggest today that, that our reading and our, our talk uh, is, is about Christians needing to keep on keeping on. Let's have a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is a, a passage that talks about devote, devotion and obedience and gospel growth. And I think we can sum it up in two sentences. We find here that consistent continuing commitment to truth and love makes an impression on the community and that God uses faith working through love to cause gospel growth. So let's think about this. So let's have a look at uh, verse 42 where we see this, this picture of consistent, continuing commitment to truth and love. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now that word devoted is a strong word. Uh, it's a word that uh, means to hold fast to something, not to, let any, not to let it go. It means to continue in it, to persevere diligently in something. Now, as I've probably bored you with many times, I like football. And I, uh, back in the days before it was telecast live, if I was out in the yard, I'd listen to it on the radio if Melbourne was playing a match. And I remember it was a pretty rare thing for Melbourne to win in the days when I used to do the garden and listen to the footy. And it was always exciting if they did pull off a win. And it was just uh, very rewarding to hear what the commentators would say. And I remember one particularly excited commentator one day, he attributed Melbourne's victory that day. He said, they kept persisting and persisting and persisting. Now, I quite like language and try to use it rightly if I can. He would only have need to have said it once. 
because to be persistent means you keep doing something. But he had to really ram it home. They kept persisting and persisting and persisting. They didn't quit persisting, in other other words. That's what it means to be devoted. It means to keep on, like Virgil paints, keep on keeping on. It means to persist in showing real diligence to something. Now, this devotion that they, um, that they displayed was in four key areas of the Christian life. And so this is a, a summary of the progress of the gospel to this point. We've had the day of Pentecost. Uh, we've had the, the preaching of, the, of Peter about the Lord Jesus. And there's been a stunning reaction to that. Uh, and, and thousands have been baptised. And so Luke takes a step back and pauses and he shows a picture of the infant community of people who followed Jesus in Jerusalem at that time. And he says they were devoted to four things, to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. So what does it mean to persist in devotion, to be consistently diligent in applying yourself to the apostles' teaching? That's the first of the four things that they were devoted to. Well, you might remember that Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke begins his, his sequel because we know that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts and they're meant to be seen together. And he begins the sequel, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the teaching of Jesus is critical to understanding both the gospel and the book of Acts. Jesus came not just to do, but to teach. He did wonderful things, but he taught. And he taught his disciples about himself and about the kingdom of God. And he taught them to understand the Old Te- what we call the Old Testament and how he was the fulfilment of that. We've seen that already a few weeks ago from Luke chapter 24. But Jesus in Matthew 28 He told the disciples they needed to go and make disciples of all nations. They needed to teach other people, not just Jews, but the whole world, to be his followers. And he said that they needed to teach these followers, these disciples, all that Jesus had commanded them. So Jesus came to teach and he taught his apostles to teach his message. And so what we find in Acts chapter 2 is that this earliest community of people who followed the Lord Jesus were diligent in applying themselves to the teaching of the apostles because the teaching of the apostles was actually the teaching of Jesus. So Acts chapter 1, in my first book, I taught about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the very strong suggestion is that Jesus is continuing to teach by the Holy Spirit through the teaching of the apostles. Well, what was the apostles' teaching? Well, it's not too hard to find out. Uh, because we've already seen the first example of it in the earlier part of Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles and it enabled them to, to speak in other languages that they didn't know themselves, but that enabled them to speak about Jesus to people there who didn't speak Hebrew. And so the, the, the earliest example of gospel proclamation, of talking about the Lord Jesus, comes in Acts chapter 2, and we find there a template for what the apostles' teaching is. Now, you can look elsewhere in the book of Acts. There's lots of other speeches that will uh, fill out the picture of what the apostles' teaching is. You can read the letters of the New Testament, and you can see more of what the apostles' teaching is. But just in this very earliest stage, we can find the the apostles' teaching described in Acts chapter 2. So have a look at verse 36. Peter says to the crowd that's gathered on the day of Pentecost, God has made him, 
both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what's the apostles teaching? It's about Jesus Christ. And it's about what God has revealed of him and through him. He was crucified and by being raised from the dead, God has revealed that he's both Lord, that is master, and Christ. In other words, the Messiah, the promised king that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. The Old Testament prophets were quite clear that God had promised he would send a wonderful, truly good king. And, and Peter says, it's, he's come and we've seen him and you killed him. So the first element of the apostles' doctrine is to proclaim that Jesus came as God's Messiah and he demonstrated his kingship by dying and then by rising again. But all of that requires a response. You can't just think, well, that's an interesting story. It requires a response. And so Peter spells out to them in Acts chapter 238. Look, look, go back and look at it, please. But Peter spells out to them. He says, this is the response. You need to repent. You need to turn from your old way of life. Repent means a complete change of mind, a complete new way of thinking. Uh, it requires a new heart and a whole new way of, of, of operating, a whole new way of behaving. It's like a U-turn. We were headed one way, we've got to turn around and go the other because we were following our own desires that would have took, taken us all the way to hell. We need to turn around and follow Jesus on the way to heaven. So repent and be baptised. In other words, give public affirmation that you've repented. Show through the, the public symbol of baptism that you've turned to the Lord Jesus. So repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven. That's the consistent message of the apostles' teaching. And he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And so in using the language of promise and the children and people being far off, Peter's quoting the prophets. He's quoting the prophet Joel from Joel chapter 2. He's quoting uh, the prophet Isaiah from chapter 57. So the prophets looked ahead not only to the day when God would send his king, but they also looked ahead to a day when God would send his Holy Spirit. And Peter says that day's arrived. The king's here and so is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't a message that's just for Jews, it's for the whole world. That's what he means by those who are far off. So Peter's message, the apostles' doctrine that the people were devoted to, in those earliest days, was that the last days have come. The last days arrived in the, the ministry of Jesus and they continue and will continue until Jesus returns again in the ministry of Jesus' followers. The last days have come. Scripture's been fulfilled. God's kingdom has come and it's still coming in God's promised king, the Christ or the Messiah. It requires a response of repentance, of this change of mind and heart, and it's a message for the whole world. That's the apostles' teaching. That's what they were devoted to. Now, I was talking to a friend the other day, uh, a friend of mine in uh, Warrigal Presbyterian Church, and we've been preaching through the book of Revelation at Warrigal Presby. And uh, my friend was telling me that he was talking about an old friend of his, and they were talking about church. And um, Malcolm said to his friend, uh, we've been working through Revelation. And the other fellow said, well, in our church, we don't believe in that. And Malcolm pressed him on it a bit. He said, oh, no, we, uh, we believe that science has disproved a lot of those sorts of things from the Bible. We've got a more progressive version of Christianity. Well, that's the very opposite of being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Um, it's, 
It's actually, it, it's, well, let's not beat around the bush. It's unchristian. Uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So heaven and earth might disappear, but his words are eternal. And what he taught the apostles about himself and about the kingdom of God is an eternal message that science will never disprove. It, look, quite apart from anything else, there are many, many, many believing scientists who understand the Bible at a very high level and understand science at a very high level, and they see no problem at all believing both. Uh, so any church that teaches that science has disproved the Bible neither understands the Bible nor science. Uh, but Jude, that little letter tucked away at the very end of the New Testament, he puts it this way. In Jude verse 3, he says that believers need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, if that faith is no longer valid, then chuck it and do something else. Find another way of living your life, but don't call yourself a Christian. Because the Christian faith depends on the words of Jesus being the fulfilment of the Old Testament scriptures, which are passed on to us because they are eternally true and consistently useful. As many of us have just discovered through, through personal experience, we know that these words are true because they keep on working. And so the earliest believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So Christian teaching aims primarily to show from the scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Uh, so Christ, the, the Apostles' Doctrine is teaching that Jesus taught and it's teaching which is about Jesus and all that he did. And so as we go through the book of Acts, you'll see that the message of Jesus brings the earliest believers into conflict because it becomes increasingly obvious that the message of Jesus is something that the Jewish leaders disapprove of. And there's a, a widening gap between the practice of Judaism and between the beliefs of Christianity. And so the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, God's king according to the scriptures, becomes a test. Because to reject that means that you've actually rejected God and his word. And that's a feature that um, plays itself out over the rest of the book of Acts. So the, the, the earliest believers were devoted. They consistently, diligently applied themselves to listening to, to hearing and to obeying the apostles' doctrine, the teaching about Jesus. But they also applied themselves, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, we often use this word fellowship and, and quite often in churches it gets sort of a debased sort of meaning because what, what it really boils down to is it just means a cup, and a, tea, a cup of tea and a biscuit after church and maybe a, a, a quick chat. But in the original sense, fellowship meant much, much more than that because in the language that the New Testament was written in, it was just used in the street language of ordinary everyday life. And so if a person out on the street heard you using the word that we translate fellowship, they would have known that you meant something that had to do with sharing in a business venture together, where you were joint partners, where you'd each invested a sum of money in that joint thing and each of you worked to make sure that it worked out. The word fellowship is a word which applied itself also in marriage partnerships where each person comes together. Uh, they've got a shared commitment to making the marriage work. Now, I've married quite a lot of people over the, the course of my uh, ministry career 
and in working things through as we get prepared for marriage, uh, one of the questions that, that we ask is, after you get married, will you keep separate bank accounts or will you have them together? Uh, I work through a bit of a program which has proved to be very helpful in, in getting people prepared for marriage. And I have not yet had one couple that said, yes, after we marry, we will have separate bank accounts. Uh, it seems to be a bad reflection on the union of marriage that, that they would say, oh, no, you know, it's going to be my money. Now, after marriage, it becomes our money. Now, I'm not commanding it. It's up to you to work out what you're going to do uh, with those sorts of things. But it seems sensible to me that, that as an expression of your commitment to the marriage itself, that, that money, which can be very divisive, is something which is seen as shared. Not, not separate, but shared. It's in that sense that we can speak of fellowship. It's a shared commitment to something that's costly, that we've invested in. Now, the connections that having in common the love of the Lord Jesus. These people had all had in common that they'd repented and turned to Jesus. They all had in common that they had confessed their sins. They knew that they needed forgiveness and that made them an equal of everyone there. And it gave them something that they held in common. And so those connections that they had, which made them a bit different from everybody else in town, those connections meant that they looked out for opportunities to be very generous with their practical support. It went much further than an hour after church. They lived their lives looking out to support generously the lives of other people, especially those who were struggling. So the earliest believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Now, that could mean the Lord's Supper, but it probably means just the idea of breaking bread together, of sharing meals together, Christian hospitality. It was one of the key notes of, of life in the first century that people would share meals together as a sign that they were connected, as a sign that they were at peace with each other. The idea of having table fellowship. Now, it probably did also include uh, remembering the Lord Jesus because we have to remember that in the earliest days of the Christian church, uh, the Lord's Supper was celebrated not with a, a tiny little fragment of bread or a wafer, not with a thimble full of juice, but in a meal where they took two of the elements that made up the ordinary meal of people in those days, a, a loaf of bread which was broken and, and a cup of wine which everybody had. And what it meant was that at any meal you could remember Jesus in the way that he'd said, break the bread, it reminds us of his body. The cup, red wine, reminds us of his blood. So the breaking of bread that they committed themselves to probably means, as well as sharing meals, it, it probably means also their habit of continuing whenever they gathered to, to remember the Lord Jesus and all that he'd done for them. But the fourth thing that they were devoted to was the prayers. Now note that it's plural. Now the NIV doesn't do this justice actually because it just says they devoted to, to prayer and it makes it sound like a personal private thing, but in fact it's the prayers, it's plural. And that does tend to suggest that um, that the prayers that have been spoken of here are a prayer of a particular kind. That means community prayer, where people came together. Now we know that the Jews had set times of prayer. So chapter 3, verse 1, the very next uh, section, uh, we find that Peter and John are going along at the hour of prayer. Right. So there were set times for Jewish prayer. And at this earliest stage of the Christian movement, the, the movement of people trusting the Lord Jesus, they hadn't broken away from Jewish practices. And so the temple continues to be a focal point of their activities. And Peter and John in chapter three are going off at the time of prayer. And so there were probably set Christian times of prayer. And no doubt there were set prayers. Jesus taught a, 
a set prayer, an outline of prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and so what we find here is an expression that these people are devoted to meeting together for the purpose of praying. And there's a challenge. And I reckon it's a challenge for many churches uh, because prayer is something that if we do it, it tends to be something that we've relegated to the private dimension of our life. But the custom of Christians actually gathering for the purpose of prayer is one that in my experience only a minority of Christians actually support. Uh, it's something that perhaps you think you ought to do or you hope that others will do, but in, in practice, joint expressions of Christian prayer are minority activities. That's been the case in every church of which I've been a part. Um, and, and uh, you know, sadly, I'm guilty of that as well at times. But the fact is that what we see here is devotion, keeping on keeping on being committed consistently and persistently to the activity of joining with other believers for the purpose of prayer. I uh, read a book by a guy called Jim Simbala who um, became the pastor of a, uh, a church in central New York and it had a massive building with hardly anybody in it. And so he went there, accepted this very tough challenge and he decided that prayer would be the barometer, the, the, uh, the thermometer, the, the measuring point of the spiritual health of the church. And so he encouraged the people to gather for prayer. And he said the, 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 the way of tell, telling whether a church is a healthy church is the commitment of its people to join together in prayer. Uh, a, a preacher who's preaching I found enormously valuable over the last few years is a guy called James Phillip. He's deceased, but his son uh, keeps all of his recorded sermons uh, available on his website. James Phillip, look up Tron Church Glasgow if you want to hear some outstanding Scottish preaching. But James Phillip uh, pastored a church in Edinburgh for many years and he made sure that, that prayer was a focal point of the church's activities and he made the prayer meeting on Saturday night because he wanted it to be costly. He wanted it to be a real commitment of people to be there. Now, I'm not saying we should emulate that, uh, but it's something to think about. And, and he made prayer a real focal point. So he's... he's could it be said of Mafra Community Church that, that prayer is something that we each are devoted to coming together to pray? So they kept on keeping on. They kept persistently being concerned, diligently occupied with the apostles' teaching, the teaching from Jesus and about Jesus. They, they were consistently concerned for the life that they shared in common. They were always on the lookout to express their fellowship in mutual help for one another. They shared life over meals and they were engaged consistently in community prayer. Very often these days, and it's been going on for a long time, church has been something that people almost see as a marginal activity. And you, you cannot read the New Testament carefully and get any sense that coming together was marginal. It was something that the earliest believers regarded as absolutely essential. A guy called Gordon Dale wrote a book back in 1972, a long time ago, but it was called Work, Play and Worship in a Leisure-Oriented Society. We each need to confess that our world shapes us and we live in a world which is besotted by leisure, by doing things to please ourselves. And he came up with what's become quite a famous little summary of modern life in, for Christians. He said, these days we worship our work 
We work at our play and we play at our worship. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Is that a fair description? Uh, it bears thinking about because he said that's his assessment of the way things were as far back as 1972. Well, let's make sure it's not true of us. Well, anyway, this life of devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers makes an impression in the community. You can see that in verse 43. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So a church devoted to expressing obedience in truth, the apostles' teaching, which works itself out in love, that's fellowship and all that comes from it, that church will be noticed because the people who, who live that way are going to have something about them which is characteristic, which, which is noticeable. It animates them and it makes a difference. Jesus said in John 13 verse 35, by this we'll all know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So a life of truth expressing itself in love is going to be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' followers and other people will notice. Now, there were signs and wonders being done by the apostles. We haven't got time to go into signs and wonders in any great detail now except to say that signs and wonders were characteristic of the Exodus when God rescued his people from, from Egypt and they were characteristic of the ministry of Jesus. He performed signs and wonders. And so in Acts 2, verse 22, Peter preaches about that and he says that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. So the purpose of the signs and the wonders in the ministry of Jesus was not just to prove that he was a magic man, it was to show that he was someone sent from God. It's significant that the signs and wonders were being done by the apostles here because what that means is they too are attested by these signs in the same way that Jesus was. How do we know that these were people sent from God? Because they do the things that Jesus did. Well, since there's no longer any apostles, we um, don't expect me to do signs and wonders. Uh, but I believe in them. I believe that they, they were done because they've been written down. Jesus actually said that to look for a sign, to seek for a sign, was the sign of no faith. Um, at best, weak faith. In, in Matthew 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him and they were looking for a sign. And, and he said, well, in fact, you've missed the sign because it's me. Uh, and he said, the only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah, which was that Jonah was buried in a fish for three days and three nights. Jesus will be buried in the earth for three days and three nights and raise, be raised again. The Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't see the signs because they wouldn't believe in what Jesus was doing. The apostles did signs and wonders to show that they were people attested by God, to show that they were bringing the message of Jesus as his accredited workers and spokespeople. And so we see in verses 44 to 46 the, uh, the faith working through love. That's what Paul says in Galatians 5. It's a great little analysis of the Christian life, faith working itself through love. And so we find there that uh, the devotion of the believers was expressed practically. Uh, we've already seen what fellowship means and that fellowship led them to care for each other. Uh, it, uh, and, and that fellowship, that, that looking out, that sharing of possessions... Now, that's not actually commanded. Don't think that we've got to drop everything and move in together. Uh, it was what some Christians have done at some points, but it's never commanded. It was an expression of things for that time and for that place. But uh, the, the picture that we have there of, in verses 44 to 47 is of people 
taking the teaching of the apostles seriously and expressing it in lives of devotion to each other. Now, the fact that it made an impression on people and a very favourable impression, because we realise in verse 47 that uh, they praised God and had favour with all the people, the reason they were making an impression on people is found at the end of verse 46, because they did all this with glad and generous hearts. Believing in Jesus should make a difference to our disposition. It should make us glad and generous. Uh, it should announce itself to the world in a joy-filled life. doesn't mean we're going to be happy and on top of the world all the time, but there should be this inner radiating uh, confidence and, and, and hopefulness that, that has a, a transformative effect on us. Uh, to be a consistently gloomy person and call yourself Christian is, is really a very bad recommendation for the faith. If we really take seriously what Jesus has done for us, we're people with hope. We're people with confidence. We're people who can face whatever the future throws at us because we know that our future is a settled matter. It, we, it rests with Jesus who's coming back again. And so these people went about their work with glad and generous hearts. They praised God and it caused them to find favour with all the people. Now, is it like that way or is it like that all the time? Uh, is your experience of living a, a joy-filled Christian life one that you find meets with the approval of everyone? Well, chances are it doesn't. That was their experience at that time. But you've only got to read the rest of the book of Acts to see that it's not the experience of the followers of Jesus at all times. Think of how many times, and it, it's going to happen very soon uh, in, the, in the telling of the story, think of how many times living the Christian life following Jesus, put people in prison. When you read Acts 12, you'll see that Jesus' brother James was killed by the sword for being a believer. You'll, um, you'll remember that Paul and, 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 and Silas were put in prison in Acts chapter 16. And of course, the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. The whole of the New Testament was written against a backdrop of, of consistent ongoing persecution. Uh, read the book of Revelation. You'll see that the persecution came from, from Jews and from pagans and from Romans. Uh, so being a, a glad and generous-hearted Christian does not guarantee that you're going to meet with the approval of, everywhere, uh, of everyone everywhere you go. That was the experience of these people at this time. And it's something to aim at anyway. See what difference it can make if you do go about with a glad and generous heart. Well, anyway, in verse 47, we find that God uses this faith working itself through love to cause gospel growth. And so as a result of these people being devoted and then living it out in practical ways, verse 47 says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so at that time and place and for God's purposes, he blessed and multiplied his work through these people. It's not always as simple. It's not always cause and effect. It doesn't always work out exactly that way. There are many stories of wonderfully committed missionaries leaving everything that they've got and going to another country where they've suffered repeatedly and seen no conversions. Uh, in the end, we have to trust these things to God, but we need to do our part. And our part is remaining devoted to those four key things, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. We'll leave the growth to God. We can't cause it, only God can. But by his Holy Spirit, he impels in us a desire for, for devotion to these things.
And so here's a challenge. It's a challenge for every church that reads these words. Is Acts 2, 42 to 47 a good description of our church? Is it a good description of Mafra Community Church? If Jesus was to give us a report card, would he say, yes, those four things are are good indicators of what you're on about? Here's another challenge. If Jesus doesn't come first... Will Mafrican Community Church continue to exist in a hundred years? And if it's to continue, what part are you going to play in that? Because it comes down to all of us. We can't leave it to others. This is a joint project. A couple of years ago, I was um, doing some hospital visiting in Richmond. I caught the train up there. And uh, walking back to the train, I walked past a, a building that I'd seen many times from the car but I'd never actually walked past it. Well, now I did. It was obviously an old church building right opposite the, uh, the MCG. So I'd driven past it many times on the way up Punt Road, sometimes though when I'd gone into the MCG to watch the footy. Uh, 233 Punt Road. And it used to be a church building, and there's this cornerstone right on the front. It, 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 it fronts Punt Road, and it fronts Little Street down to the side. It's now not a church. It's owned by an accountancy firm. But the inscriptions on that cornerstone were textbook. If you were going to choose two, two verses from the New Testament as your foundation for your church, these are pretty good ones. So one of them was, they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, Acts 2.42. That's a good verse, we've just read it. So a church committing itself to the, the doctrine taught by the Apostles. But then the other side of the, of the stone said, earnestly contending for the faith delivered to the saints. That's Jude 3 that I talked about before. The faith once for all delivered. Well, that's a great start for a church if that was what they were committed to. So what happened to it? How did it end up in the hands of a firm of accountants? Well, I did some homework on the internet and you can discover lots on the internet. Um, the first service of that church was Good Friday of 1939. And the Age newspaper reported uh, in the church notices section of what the Age newspaper used to have on the, uh, on the 8th of October 1949 that if you went to that church on, on the, the coming Sunday, at 11 o'clock they'd have their breaking of bread service, at 3pm there'd be a children's service, 6pm there'd be a gospel service, Tuesday 7.45 there'd be a united missionary meeting, Thursday at 8pm there'd be a women's meeting, by 1962, it had become the base, the home base for an Aboriginal mission. It was an active church full of good things, the sorts of things that churches should be doing. But now it's heritage listed. The building's heritage listed. But the message for which the building was built has been discarded. What went wrong? I don't know. I've got no idea. Maybe the suburb changed and people moved away. I don't know. But it was a handsome building built by a famous architect, and because of that, now heritage listed. So they obviously made a good beginning. Did their devotion wane? Did they just cease to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, the basic things of the Christian community? Or did their love dissipate? Were they people who were committed to the truth but without love? Because we can't have one without the other. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but God is love. Jesus is God, so Jesus is love too. And he commands us to love each other. 
Truth needs to express itself in love, but you can't have love without truth. Neither can work without the other. We need to have both. So how can we in Mafra Community Church avoid going the same way? Well, I think the answer is in our passage. We need to be consistent in our continuing commitment to truth and love, trusting that in God's good purposes that will make an impression on our community as we live lives of, of generosity and joy and gratitude and trusting it also to God to use our faith community and our love to cause gospel growth. Let's pray that that would be the case. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful words from Luke. Uh, we thank you for that earliest Christian community that devoted themselves to these things. And we pray too that you would help us now in our day and in our place to be devoted to the teaching of the Lord Jesus and the teaching about the Lord Jesus and all that he's done. Please help us to be committed to loving one another, to looking out for ways of of helping each other at times of burden and stress and shortcomings. Uh, please help us to be generous in our application of, of, of our care for other people. Please help us to be generous in our outlook uh, as we seek to entertain each other, as we seek to share hospitality one with another. But may it not just be about friendship, maybe it, may it be about the, the whole idea of building each other up in our love for the Lord Jesus. So help us to look for opportunities to share Christ with each other as we do with the world as well. But Father, I pray that Mafra Community Church might be characterised by a shared commitment to prayer as we join together to seek your will, to, uh, to ask for your assistance, and as we surrender all that we have to the purposes that you hold out for us in Christ and in our world. Father, we ask that you would enable us to remain faithful so that as long as Mafra as a city endures, as a town, as it endures, we pray that there will be an expression of the Christian faith called Mafra Community Church, um, honouring the Lord Jesus and serving the community. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. See you again soon, I trust. Bye.